welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Podicano, an Our Band Could Be Your Life miniseries. We are taking a journey through Michael Azarad's chronicle of the 1980s American underground rock scene, continuing today with Chapter 5, Husker Du. Exploding out of Minneapolis in 1979, the trio composed of guitarist-vocalist Bob Mould, drummer-vocalist Grant Hart, and bassist-vocalist Greg Norton, Husker Du started off as a typical hardcore band, though with songs cranked to impossible tempos as referenced in their debut EP's title, Land Speed Record. But as Mould and Hart developed as songwriters, and influences of 60s folk and pop eventually crept in, the band grew into a powerhouse of force and musicianship and became the first of the American hardcore acts to break into major labels. But label pressure and interpersonal friction would drive the band apart at the height of their success, and today we'll be talking all things do from Chapter 5 of Our Band Could Be Your Life. But first, let's introduce our guest. He's a culture critic for Uproxx, host of the IndieCast podcast, and author of such books as Twilight of the Gods and This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A and the Beginning of the 21st Century. Folks, it's Stephen Hyden. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yes. Thank are we going to we gonna be talking faster than any podcast hosts have ever talked in <laughs> yes. this episode? A like hardcore podcast <laughs> yes. that's just like, it's all done in like 15 minutes. I would well, love to to make a podcast with review, that would elicit future reviews like that, being like, to that time before, no man had heard such blisteringly fast rhythms as escaped them after their first round of scintillating tours. I mean, I think we should follow the arc where... The, the beginning of the podcast is really fast, but then by the end, it's really melodic. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's also backed by like a major corporation. Yeah. But <laughs> it, we are all kind of fighting to speak equally, you know. Yes. <laughs> as was the case in Husker Du. And then we'll end up falling apart at the end because one of us will lose our methadone while on yes. tour. <laughs> That's how every uh, every one of these podcast episodes tends tends to go, so... I think pods should start having pod writing credits. So at the end of each episode, you you have to credit one person specifically to being the the major generator of the idea. Right. But like <laughs> one, and I don't know, maybe this is the case. I, I don't know how much tension exists between you two as the host mm. of the show. I don't know if like one of you insists that the other one can only talk 45% of the time, <laughs> which, which I, because I, I think that was the thing in Husker Du, right? Yeah, yeah. Like yes. Reinhardt is like, I can only have, 45% of the album, uh, which is which is crazy. And that's what ended up happening on, on Warehouse songs yeah. and stories. Because I think there's like there's 11 Bob Mould songs and nine Grant Hart. I think Grant Hart actually like wrote more songs so uh-huh. he could like get his full 45%. It is, very, uh, it is very funny like generating a double album, like consistently generating double albums almost only out of songwriting spite. Yeah. Although uh, at the same time, like they, they delivered – you yeah. know, mm-hmm. like, you know, it wasn't just that Grant Hart was just, you know, crapping yeah. out songs just for the sake of songs. Like the songs on Warehouse are are fantastic, the Grant Hart songs. Well, we'll get into all of this and, and how they go from a uh, land speed record to uh, l- label songwriting dispute. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let's go. Let's go around first like we normally do and start this show by saying how you came to or first heard of Husker Du. Molly, do you want to go first? 
I mean, I'm boring. This was another band that I found out basically through the book when the first time I read the book. And I think I'd obviously I'd known the name Husker Du. And I think um, I had not, not knowing what what output the band had had and not listened to it at all. I thought based on the name and the copious umlauts that it was like a hair metal band. Yes. <laughs> and like I, I, I misplaced the scene based on the name and thought it was like some over the top like Norwegians or something. And then uh, was semi surprised to find that once a uh, once I read the chapter when I read the book the first time around that they were uh, they were uh, Minnesotans instead. So yeah, I I I went in pretty cold on on them, but I, I dig them. I'll, I'll go real quick. Uh, my first exposure to Husker Du, other than just like ambiently hearing about them in the um pop culture, was in the uh, t- television trailer for the David Spade film uh, Joe Dirt. There is a joke that he says in which he's listing types of fireworks he sells. And one of the jokes that made it to the trailer for that movie, because I've never seen it, but I know this happens in the movie, is him saying that he the fireworks that he sells includes Husker Do's, Husker Don'ts. You're going to stand there owning a fireworks stand and tell me you don't have no whistling bungholes, no spleen splitters, whisker biscuits, honky lighters, Husker Do's, Husker Don'ts. Uh, and that was probably the first time that I like knew of them as a pop culture force. And then a little later, I believe found them via some kind of either internet post or or like maybe novelty book my parents got me uh something along the lines of the hipster handbook <laughs> that was like a guide of things that you need must like to quote be a hipster mm. and i remember in that it had a, a list being like who's could do don't let their name fool you this is an important band of good songwriters <laughs> and you must knew, know this this band and I think from that I got New Day Rising and, and and really committed to that for a while. And then it wasn't yeah, it wasn't until I then got really into this book that I went back and, and picked up Zen Arcade and all the other bands on this. But um that New Day Rising I I, I really liked in college a lot. And I guess it was interesting because I approached it much more as like a, a kind of melodic singer or like like songwritery album rather than through their hardcore tradition more. Mm-hmm. So that that was kind of my priors with Who's Uh what about you, Steven? So I, I'm trying to remember like exactly when I first heard about Husker Du. I know it was sometime in the early '90s when I was around, you know, probably 14 or 15 years old when I was really starting to um, learn about music history. But also, I was really into the alternative rock of the time. So I think I had heard Husker Du mentioned in reference to Nirvana. I think there was like mm-hmm. a rumor that Bob Mould was considered as a producer for Nevermind. Like, I don't know if that's true or not, but I remember hearing that. That sounds like something you would, you would hear, but I feel like I didn't really dig into Husker Du until the sugar record came out. Copper blue in 1992, which I think is still like my favorite Bob mold album in any incarnation. It's sort of like taking the Husker Du template and buffing it to like this larger than life sonic you know gloss you know it's a very mm. shiny record it sounds like way fuller than any Husker Du record for good and for bad I mean I think the sound of those Husker Du records are, it's so unique and just revisiting them getting ready for the show really kind of brings that home how for as influential as they are there's really not a lot of bands that, that sound exactly like them um, so it was around that time, you know, just because they were being mentioned as a band that was influential, I went back and I think Warehouse was the first record 
I heard. And it's kind of amazing because, you know, that record came out in 1987. I probably would have heard it like five years later, which isn't that long, but it seemed like a really long time mm. at the time. And, right. and that I'm sure had to do with my age. You know, I was just pretty young. But also, I feel like things changed so much from like 92 to 87. Um, even though you could say that a lot of what was happening in the mainstream of rock music was an outgrowth of what had happened, uh, you know, in, in the eighties. Um, like for me, it, it, it just seemed so different. Uh, it seemed like a classic rock record. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and I was already getting into the replacements too at that time. Uh, and they were the same thing, even though mm -hmm. like they didn't break up until 91. I think they broke up in July of 91. And then like literally the next month, August of 91, you have, like the first Pearl Jam record comes out. I think the like the Metallica Black album came out in August, and then the next month you have Nevermind, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Bad Motor Finger. Like it really is like that direct of like, okay, these '80s bands are done. Now there's these <laughs> '90s bands, <laughs> and you know, and those, and you know, I don't think I would have noticed that if I were. 30 years old in 1981 but as a mm -hmm. 14 year old that's like so obvious I, I like how records that are just a few years old seemed seem ancient mm -hmm. right uh but i i really loved husker do i think i responded to them not just because i like the music but also and this is also true of the replacements because they were from minnesota and mm -hmm. right. i'm from i'm from wisconsin originally and um especially at that time you know if you grew up in Wisconsin or Minnesota, no one ever talked about you in the media. Mm -hmm. You know, you never saw people from like your part of the country on television unless they were like making fun of you. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's how it always was. Um, and obviously Minnesota had a lot of notoriety because of Prince. I mean, that he was a huge deal, obviously, in the 80s. But um, I think that was part of the attraction for me that they were like this, these, these Midwestern bands. Um coming out and i think that's a very big part of their personality you know mm -hmm. yeah certainly the, certainly the replacements i mean they they kind of foregrounded it i think more than husker du did and it was funny like when you brought up joe dirt i would have expected joe dirt to be more of a replacements fan not a husker <laughs> du fan but you know that, that that's a that's a that's a cool surprise but um so yeah that was the beginning and then i got into all like the bob mold solo records too like workbook which is a pretty i don't know i don't know if we'll have time to talk about that that's a pretty interesting left turn after husker do making this like acoustic singer songwriter record um but yeah uh so yeah there so so before that book came out i was i was definitely already into that band there were other bands that i didn't really know about until i read the azurad book but mm -hmm. husker do i knew for sure uh, it's interesting here you say talk about that immediate switch and like listening to a Husker Du album, you know, after like all those big albums of the nineties or the early nineties dropped, like you were talking about, because I could totally imagine just sonically how like quaint or something or like old that, that my, the Husker Du albums might sound after, you know, like, I don't know, putting on blood sugar, sex magic, and then listening to <laughs> right. the particular like sonic qualities. It's of, sonically of those but, like mid mid eighties Husker Du albums. Right. Yeah. It's definitely true sonically, but also just, it just seemed like a different world. And, right. and even mm -hmm. now, in retrospect, like when I see video of Husker Du or the replacements in the 80s, it is like watching 
video of the Stones in the '60s to me, mm-hmm. or you know, Led Zeppelin in the '70s. It's like I like it. Like I I love this music. It's so relevant to me, but it just seems uh, like part of a different world. And in a way, it elevates it because of that. You know, like yeah. when something isn't of this. This is true for me. When something isn't of my generation, it seems more mythic in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Certainly of those Husker Du and Replacements records. But, you know, like with Husker Du, you know, I was thinking about this before I got on the show with you guys that I think more than any other band in that book, they are the most influential in terms of like what 90s alternative rock became. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. collision of noise and melody in Mm -hmm. a punk rock context that because like Husker Du to me is like the first band that did what a lot of bands did where you start off in a hardcore scene and then you become more melodic later on. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something many bands have done. But like Husker Du to me, they seem like the first in a way because they were so extreme at the mm-hmm. beginning. And then they became this band that I think a lot of bands in the 90s tried to sound like even more than like, say, The Replacements who – Truth be told, I probably like the replacements more than Husker do, but I don't think they were as influential because the replacements come from that sort of American roots tradition of like you can hear blues and country in their music. And I think that becomes more pronounced in Paul Westerberg's solo career, especially. Whereas there's none of that in Husker do. There's no blues in Husker do. Like, <laughs> you know, there, it, it's something totally different, just like there isn't really in Nirvana, except I guess maybe at the end, like where. Cobain is starting to cover Lead Belly songs like at the end of his life. But, you know, that to me seems so influential on like what alt rock became. And it's funny because it's like, I think the, uh, their particular, particular trajectory is like the hardcoreness of their early years then kind of gives credibility to them move into melodicness, at least in, in terms of like navigating the scene and like becoming the first people to like really break through to major labels. Uh, it, it just like stylistically. For some people, I think. I mean, for me personally, and I, I don't want to make anyone angry listening to this show, but I think hardcore is like pretty boring music, personally. And I think I don't really care about who's going to do records until like Metal Circus. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's kind of like the first record. I mean, you know, it's funny, like Savage Young Do, like that's box set. That actually made me reconsider that opinion because I, I do appreciate the energy that's on mm-hmm. that record. But to me, like... The sweet spot is with that band is when they had the velocity and the noise and just like the pure sensation of their sound combined with melody. Like that is like the peanut butter and you know chocolate combination. <laughs> that when it's just the noise, you know, it's yeah. it's boring. And then, you know, like when there's like moments on Candy Apple Gray where maybe they lose the noise a little bit too much and it gets a little boring, you know. So, like, if they go too far in the opposite direction, it, they lose it. But when they have both, which, you know, I feel like this is an unpopular opinion, but I still love Warehouse. I, mm-hmm. I love that record. And I, think, and I think I love the conversation going on between Bob Mould and Grant Hart. I love that dynamic. And I think that they're such an, like, they're one of the great examples of that kind of thing in mm-hmm. rock music or pop music. We have two strong songwriters who, in a way, are competing with each other. Right. And that to me is like the magic of the band. That's like what I really love about them. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just start getting into a little of the band history and trajectory, and then we can, you know, kind of give these, uh, give these takes some context. So uh, Molly, you want to take us through? 
I will I will start us on the the journey that led to this uh, uh, competitive songwriting <laughs> pairing. Um, so Bob Mould grew up in uh, like northern New York, like super almost like Canadian border New York. Um, and he was I feel like this is this starts to get like kind of tale as old as time by this point in the book of uh, he was first a Beatles fan and then a Ramones fan <laughs> of like the trajectory <laughs> of like I love this melodic shit. Uh, and this poppy shit and then oh wait this is someone who's sort of uh destroying that I, and i can do that as well um so so that's that that's pretty regular at this point in the narrative um and he went off to McAllister college in st paul minnesota he was on an underprivileged student scholarship he became part of the punk band welcoming committee uh as a part of the <laughs> which is you know amazing Mid- midwest hospitality um, so like visiting bands would come and play, he would buy them, uh, you know, bring them sandwiches and buy them beer or, uh, sometimes stronger things than beer as with the case with Johnny Thunders, who he would like get, he came to town, uh, Bob Mould bought him some kind of like painkillers and, and Johnny Thunders was like, what else you got? <laughs> uh, but he started playing guitar. He also started buying, uh, weed from a record store clerk who was Grant Hart. Um, and then the band kind of formed in a, a, an impromptu way where there was a guy, uh, Charlie Pine, who was a keyboardist, <laughs> basically pitched that he had a band to a, a venue called Ron's Randolph Inn and was like, can we have a slot? And they said yes. And he's like, oh, shit, I need a band. And so the band kind of formed around Charlie Pine, uh, along with uh, Greg Norton joined at that point, too. And then they played the gig and then they played a second gig and literally started rehearsing without Charlie Pine. And when he tried to play songs, the songs that they had rehearsed without him, uh, someone like flipped him off and like kicked him off the stage and unplugged his keyboard. And that was the end of Charlie Pine as a member of Who's Do. Rip Charlie Pine. I always I feel like there are several band history stories that have the conceit of telling a, a club promoter that you have a band without actually having a band and having to force like put something together in a week and then that band persisting for years uh which i always find to be a very uh interesting and fortuitous way to start something uh i personally am way too much of an order obsessive to ever make that kind of bluff and that's probably why i will not ever start an influential hardcore band you should try it's never too late chris you're right i mean that that's the best way to get yourself on board is just to force yourself to tell somebody you have a band and then get you know Get yourself uh, committed. Well, I know like in Jeff Tweedy's book, he writes about how when he was a kid, he would play people Bruce Springsteen songs and say that he wrote them. <laughs> yes. You know, and like how, you know, I think, and he talks about how the first step, I think, in being in a band is that you have to imagine yourself in a band. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that is a common thing. You, you fake it till you make it. One must imagine Sisyphus gigging. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, Chris. You're gonna run, you're gonna run that pit into the ground. I am. I'm gonna say it on every pod. I'm on. You're gonna say it on every pod. Um, so they didn't, you know, uh, as a as a thing, uh, Who's Do was not, um, you know, immediately locally beloved. They did da- gain a devoted group of uh, fans called the Veggies. Um, <laughs> and one one of their early like issues, at least as a local band, was that uh, they were people from St. Paul, which uh, uh, Bob Mould was like, that's like being East German. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of uh, that's still true too i feel like there's this weird thing about saint paul that it's you know less hip that's than, so funny the minneapolis um and it's true i mean like minneapolis is i think the more cosmopolitan city the capital is in saint paul uh but uh yeah it, it doesn't have the same cachet i mean i live in a suburb so it's like that's like even lamer 
than that. But you know, yeah, it, it, it's funny how that still exists. I think well, when when Chapo toured to to Minneapolis area, I think we ended up staying more to the St. Paul side, and mm. like without even really trying. Uh, we were staying in in some like Tudor style Bavarian uh, Airbnb yeah. and accent and like or we're looking for places that would seamless and the only place that would send us anything was like a pretzel restaurant, right? So it yeah, it, like, it seemed like very much like oh the, yeah this is the uh, <laughs> we, it feels we, like a smaller town Germany, yeah yeah it feels like a smaller town than, than than Minneapolis but you know just hearing you talk about the early history of the band it just reminds me of one of the things I appreciate about the Azerad book is how tied to scenes a lot of the bands are in that book mm, mm-hmm. and i think that is a big difference between what indie rock was then versus now i think the 80s there was a real premium put on localism mm-hmm. yeah. and uh staying in your town and and the idea that like different areas would have a different flavor it's funny because like i hadn't looked at this book in a while i i it's for some reason in my mind like rem was in this book and, they're the, and go, the ghost that haunts this book. They're one not. Of, yeah, one, one of the ghosts that haunts this book. That's a big, that is a big hole, I think, in the book. Um, and I wonder, my, I mean, my guess is that they were too famous to put in the book. Because I think Azarad writes in the intro about how he was inspired to write this book because he felt like people in the 90s, there was an assumption that indie rock began with Nirvana. And he felt mm-hmm. like this was a chapter in rock history that hadn't been written yet. And so maybe he didn't put REM in because they were hugely successful at the time that he started writing this book. Although it's funny because I feel like there's a lot of bands in this book now that are more celebrated now than, you know, the bands that were popular in the nineties, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, like it's like, it's still cool to like the replacements and Husker Du and Sonic Youth in a way. It's not cool sometimes to like some of those big nineties bands. I think unfairly, I think mm. I, I, I would argue, I, I would say that's unfair. Someone should write the counterpoint to this book now in a way. Cause it's like, cause you know, it, it, he was rectifying something that was wrong with history mm-hmm. in 2001, but like in 2021, it's like people go to so many people have read his book now that it's kind of gone the other way. But anyway, that's, that, that's not his fault or anyone's fault, but that's, I think that's maybe an observation I would make yeah. about that. But, yeah, I think. But anyway, great. yeah, REM. Should, but uh, going back to my original point, I mean, REM was like I think a big proponent of that as well, the localism mm-hmm. idea, right. um, and, and having Husker Du and the replacements both be from Minneapolis. I mean, that was that really just put that city on the map, and uh, along with Prince, obviously. Yeah. It is funny that the, the, the poles of the uh, the Minneapolis music scene are like Husker Du replacements and Prince, like <laughs> two energies that are. Very, very dissimilar, but great in their own ways. Prince skews the curve of whatever he's on one yeah. side of, you know, pretty, yeah. pretty viciously. We were, we yeah. were joking this morning that uh, we were like, "What did Prince wear in the winter time in Minneapolis?" Yeah. Like, just imagining a <laughs> like, what did his winter Prince coat look like? You know, bef- pre-framed Prince wandering around Minneapolis, like doing his thing. It's a very hard thing to like conceive of. Like, did he have a, right. did he have a parka? Did he like dress for the weather? It's just like hard to. You know. I just imagine like a cryogenic tank that they just rolled <laughs> right. him around in, and, <laughs> right. and then he yeah. just opened up and he came out like in panties and right. a trench coat, <laughs> right. and, oh, and it was great. Yeah, I, I mean, there's the weather thing. I mean, and that is funny, but I, I, I feel like too that Prince was not all that accepted mm-hmm. locally in his prime. He's now like like a Jesus figure in Minneapolis. Like <laughs> right. people are so into Prince now, but I. Uh, 
I saw a review of Dirty Mind from the Minneapolis Star Tribune that ran in 1980, just like ripping the record. <laughs> oh saying, my God. You know, this guy, you know, he relies too much on tawdry lyrics and like all the lame <laughs> square criticisms you could make of Prince. You know, and that's like his local paper. You know, normally you expect the local paper to uh, have some home cooking, you know, for yeah, like yeah. a right. local star, but you know, they, they didn't for him. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but that's definitely changed, you know, in the 40 years since. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, I mean, speaking of the, the local scene, um, they, you know, they, they were lumped in with the hardcore scene, even though they weren't necessarily doing the like doctrinaire hardcore thing. Like at this point, Black Flag it both exists and they did play for Black Flag at a show in Chicago um, and like totally, I guess, completely freaked them out. Uh, and Bob Mould <laughs> said, you know, it's it's not like our name was a social red youth dynasty brigade distortion. Uh, I love when they um, <laughs> pretty much in every chapter. I love that each of the the artists will make fun of the the, the lame last. hardcore band yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. yeah where, where it is always like a Red Youth Faction or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Well, I think like with Husker Du too, and you could say this about the replacements as well, that like they also didn't look like a punk band. Yeah. You know, yeah. they didn't have the, the costume. You have Bob Mould who, you know, he's kind of this pudgy guy. He looks like an English major. You have Grant Hart, who's like a barefoot drummer. It looks like a hippie. He's like wearing like tie-dyed shirts. And then, of course, you have, you know, Greg Norton with the most spectacular mustache, uh, this side of Freddie Mercury in, yes. in rock and roll. Um, you know, and I think, to me, that, that that's something very upper Midwestern about that. This idea mm-hmm. that, like, you almost run away from being accepted because right. you feel like you're not going to be. So it's like, okay, the people on the coast, they're never going to look at us as like hip, as black flag. So we'll just run away from it. Right. Yeah. We're not even going to try. Like you can't fire me because I quit. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, which That's a powerful uh, energy. Yeah. Honestly. And, and I look, I totally relate to that and respect that. So, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's something else that endeared me to them when I, you know, first started listening to them. Yep. Yes. Um, well, they had a local rivalry uh, pr- pretty much immediately after existing with the replacements. And, you know, the way they, at least Azurad positioned them in the book, is that Husker Du had started, uh, you know, practicing, gigging, even going on tour versus the replacements had played like two shows and got signed to the local label Twin Tone. Um, and so there was, it, in the next chapter, the replacements chapter, they said that the rivalry was healthy and that it seemed like everyone like pretty much got along, but there was this kind of sense of like, you know, two bands sort of upping the ante for each other, uh, within the scene. And that came out, uh, in, in the speed of Husker Du's music, which, you know, where they, they went on a West coast tour and basically came back as, as it seems to keep happening of like people aren't necessarily the best at their instruments when they start playing. And then they like get, they literally get better at it because they just play it more. Um, and that resulted in land speed record, which they recorded for $350. Uh, and Azarad's uh, uh, assessment of this album is interesting. He said that the, the key to the Husker Du style was hearing their take on the Gilligan's Island theme song because uh, if you could find the tune buried in the band's dense attack, you could start to pick up the structures and melodies deeply inscribed in the originals, too. So should we listen to something from Landspeed Records? Yes. I'm going to try to pull up the uh, Gilligan's Island. Uh, cool. Here is Husker Du's cover of the Gilligan's Island theme. 
say i get what azarad's going for there because then when you do hear that little the melody the three-hour tour it's melody, like a rosetta stone yeah yeah that then was, you can like you're like oh i get uh, okay that's a melody got it <laughs> i was just thinking of that uh richard linkletter movie everybody wants some and there's a scene like where they go to a punk club and uh, the punk band plays a cover of gilligan's island it's like a punk rock version of it so i wonder if that was like a common thing that hardcore bands did at the time like we're yeah. gonna do the hardcore version of whatever you know yeah um yeah, yeah it, it it's interesting to compare who's could do in the replacements because i think the main difference for me is that in the replacements it's so much about the persona of paul westerberg and how that manifests in the lyrics of replacement songs mm-hmm. i mean along with them being again kind of rooted in that kind of classic rock tradition of like you know, like to me, they kind of come from the same place that the Stones and Bob Dylan come from. Right. Um, they're part of that lineage in the 80s. But also just Paul Westerberg refining his voice as this essentially like sensitive uh, jerk. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. he's, he's the sensitive. The classic drunk. archetype. Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy that like is going to be obnoxious when you first meet him. But after a few beers, he's going to be like crying yes. about his inner hurt, which is a persona that. I think every Midwestern man of a certain age attempted to like steal at some point, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you realize that like, I'm not Paul Westerberg. And also <laughs> uh, if you're a sensitive jerk, you're still just a jerk. Right. You know? mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're sensitive, you're, you're a jerk. Whereas I think with Husker Du, I think Bob Mould and Grant Hart both wrote great lyrics, but it's like about the sound mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. band. And it's about, Feeling exhilarated because you're overwhelmed like, mm-hmm. with just sonic information. And I remember reading this thing. I think Bob Mould was talking about like when this must have been when Sugar came out. Like he had this fantasy that like Sugar and My Bloody Valentine would do a show together where they'd be in a stadium and like on opposite ends, like in <laughs> opposite ends of, and just playing at each other. Yeah, because uh, like he heard my bloody Valentine, and he, I think he probably felt correctly that they were picking up on what he was doing right. originally in Husker Du, of like, yeah, just blow people away. Like where, like if you watch live footage of Husker Du, a lot of times you can't like hear anything. Mm-hmm. It's just buzzsaw guitar. <laughs> Bob Mould's voice 
right which is almost like a second guitar i think sometimes <laughs> like especially when they do those they're they're like harmonies and stuff like the weird harmony intervals and we'll, we'll get to right. this in some of the later songs has that kind of just like taking up space but also very cutting you know yeah i mean the contrast in their voices, Grant Hart and Bob Mould, I think is really interesting. And, you know, it, I don't want to be overly reductive because it's so easy to reduce everything to the Beatles. But, I mean, there <laughs> is that similar thing of, like, Grant Hart having a kind of McCartney-like melodic and a melodic sense in his voice, I think, operates in a similar range. And then you have the John Lennon figure with, with Bob Mould. Mm. Just, just Mould's vocals, though, where he's singing so hard. And but there's also like such a vulnerability to it. Like he's not like Henry Rollins, who's this tough guy, you know, like with the mm-hmm. shirt off and like you feel like he could kick your ass. Like if you and will in the wrong way, he will. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Bob Mould yelled, but like it was expressing anguish and vulnerability where it, it was like. He couldn't contain himself in his songs. Yeah, and we can talk um, about that more when we get into some of the songs we can actually hear. But yeah, yeah. He, he just feels there is like a, this kind of overwhelming uh, uh, sadness <laughs> that you that you get from these songs that are still very loud and powerful. Yeah, it's like he's angry, but you feel like it's the anger is driven by like heartache. Yeah, yeah, mm. and it's like he's cry singing almost on some of these songs, um, which I think again is probably unique for the scene that they were coming out of because again it wasn't this like sort of finger pointing song like where you're angry at Ronald Reagan and you're <laughs> you know, discrediting him or yeah. or it's not a song about like just showing like how tough you are mm-hmm. um it's all about vulnerability even when it's angry right well let's push it push the narrative forward a little bit yeah so they the ep that gets or the release that gets some more national play uh, I think on college radios, everything falls apart. Um, and that's where they're sort of uh, pushing away from just the, the the hardcore vibe of just doing things super, super fast and loud for the sake of doing things super fast and loud. Um, and they, uh, I should say, too, that Landspeed Record came out on New Alliance, which was Mike Watts' label, because SST was interested, but they didn't have the cash to do it. The, and this is sort of marking the the era where, like, more and more of these independent labels are happening. Uh, but like, it's, it still sounds like every label is waiting for like the last check to cash before they can do anything else. And so like, they're like, okay, well let's pass it along to the next thing. And that, that was, a. Uh, that was where Husker Du ended up. And, um, and Husker, Husker Du versus SST's cash flow is like kind of one of the main atta- antagonisms yes. of this chapter. 100%. Um, but yeah, the, the, the balance sheets, it's, it's just rough. Um, but then SST was finally, uh, you know, they, they were a label that could handle uh, distributing uh, Metal Circus, which was, uh, you know, I think sold more than anything that they had previously. Uh, and yeah, they started getting played by college radio and, um, you know, started playing New York and, and traveling a little bit more. Should we listen to something from Metal Circus? Yeah, let's play something off Metal Circus. And while, while you're pulling it up, the mm-hmm. I, I thought this was uh, a standout bit from Azarad where he said, in concert, the band inspired nothing short of awe. Husker Du tapped into levels of visceral and psychic power that few bands have before or since. And the effect was extraordinary. <laughs> and I only point this out because really up until this book, a lot of the live shows of these bands have been marked by 
anything from uh, just violence to incompetence. And so like the idea, it just, it sounds like when Who's Your Dude took the stage, like they, they had an intention and uh, that it followed through and was like effective for the audience, which again is a <laughs> sign of the, the growth of the genre uh, as opposed to just kind of, you know, breaking your instruments and, and uh, getting into fistfights. Here is It's Not Funny Anymore off of Metal Circus. I meant to say this when we were talking about the land speed record things, but there is something about the way Grant Hart dr- drums that just makes me think of like Animal from the Muppets, just like kind of uh, bursting out uh, across everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you can really, uh, I mean, hear the evolution here and those that combination of those very raw vocal performances with the best harmonies that we've heard so far in this as we've moved across, or not harmonies, vocal melodies that we've mm-hmm. heard so far going through this book it's interesting too listening to these records which i love i love especially from middle circus on i really love them but like how tame they sound relative to what husker do was doing on stage which i think i didn't know when i first got into the band because i didn't have didn't have youtube back then i didn't have access to like all this video but like if you watch live husker do footage from like 83 84 85 it's like really loud and really mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. And like um, when you listen to their records, like the way that they're mixed or produced or whatever it is, like the drums always sound like um, like he's hitting on like like plastic buckets. Yeah. And like yeah, yeah. the guitars just aren't that muscular. You know, and again, going back to that Sugar record, Copper Blue, I think that was like the revelation of that. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the first Bob Bolt music I ever heard. But like kind of going to Who's Could Do and then going to Sugar again. It just sounds so much bigger. And I think, I don't know how much of that was just wanting to set yourself apart from like the big time corporate rock records of the time. Like you didn't want to sound too big, but it it does seem like a little self-defeating at the same time, because I feel like it doesn't serve that band to sound like as thin as they do, like even on their great records. It's like, man, this and I, I mean, but I feel like that's endemic to like a lot of the bands that are in that book. I mean, the replacements, Again, like some of their production on their records is like, like not that good. Like yeah. Tim is infamous for that. Um, yeah, and they so. and they talk about in the book how, I, in their entire discography, I think there was one record they got to make that they did that they had more than forty eight hours to record. <laughs> God. So it's like, I mean, part of that I think is is like the the time limitations, the money limitations, the technical limitations of the people who were doing it. But I I, I 
totally get that and think that is uh unfortunate that that the hugeness of the live sound can't be duplicated but there is something so interesting and unique sounding about these records where it is this big guitar sound like but at the same time it is very thin and, and tinny it's it's both wide and flat in a way if that makes sense you know yeah and like i'm again i'm blown away by bob mold's guitar sound because it's this it's almost like the guitar is just like a straight line of like fuzz right and the yeah. melody is from the vocal Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which is incredible, and it, I, and you mentioned like the guitar solos that Mold is doing. <laughs> yeah, and and you see him on stage; he's playing like a flying V guitar. Yes. Um, so it definitely has some of that '70s arena rock residual influence. Yeah, uh, there that all with, harmonic solo as he goes into the the chorus, uh, which I love. Is very it's it's very fun because it, like it's so perfectly disor- discordant, but then with that nice melody coming in over it, perfect. And it, I think it actually works for those Husker Du records because, because again, sometimes the solo is like just cutting through the noise, right? You know, it's like because it can just be this mountain of fuzz, and then you know, mold will just go crazy on the guitar. Which, like, when you played that song from Landspeed Record, he was doing that then too. Like, mm-hmm. there's all these just crazy, wanky solos going on in the middle of this hardcore song. Yeah, pretty pretty fun i think it reminded me of the thing that we talked about yeah you would know steven but from our first episode with branson where he he talks about the hardcore tendency of trying to just like jam like a traditional 16 bar solo into a two bar break where it just <laughs> has that sense of like falling over yourself to get as many notes in as you possibly can but it's still you know it works because it sounds like this is a joyous explosion of, of guitar energy <laughs> and that's kind of like a lost art because mm. there aren't a lot of indie bands now that like have guitar solos or like um, even guitar workouts are even a thing that you want to no. do. Like nobody would, would other than you would hire a session guy to be your like on stage guitarist for when you tour who would maybe have one chance to do like one, like show off finger tap solo in the middle of your pop song or something. Yeah, or, you know? yeah, or, yeah, or yeah, just like any kind of instrumental break. Which I'm a huge fan of. Like, I yeah, love we love that. the instruments, folks. Come on, let's play our <laughs> let's play our instruments. Yeah, you know, you don't always have to be talking. Yeah, you don't have to be talking about you know whatever. You know, be quiet. But you know, you just wonder to what degree people can even pull that off. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I think there's an aversion to it, but I also feel like, um, you know, I mean, just just because bands a lot of a lot of times now they come up in a different way where. It's pretty common now to like not play a show ever until you, you know, put your record out on Bandcamp and then it gets good press. And yeah. then there's actually demand for you to play shows. Then it's like, oh, I have to hire a band. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's not an <laughs> uncommon trajectory. Yeah. Um, whereas, like you said before, uh, you were talking about them going to the West Coast and just playing a ton. I think they were, I think the thing I saw, I think they were there for like six weeks or something just playing a bunch of shows like in the San Francisco area. And then they came back and they were like really good. Yeah. Cause they were just yeah. playing all the time. Trial, trial by fire. Um, well, <laughs> just to, to get a little more into the, the, the essential differences between Bob Mold and Grant Hart. Uh, it's, it's summed up with a, an interview with, I think it was a, a fanzine of some sort where, uh, when asked what his perfect afternoon would be, uh, Grant Hart said it would be spent hanging around somewhere where there's flowers and birds and stuff. <laughs> and then meanwhile, uh, Bob Mould's uh, favorite color was gray and his favorite food was beef. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that the like this, the surly uh, kind of uh, no nonsense guy and the 
yeah, the the pot smoking uh, uh, would be hippie is a. Uh, really essentialized in those interview responses. Favorite food beef is beef. just so perfect. It, it reminds me of Mitt like- Romney saying his favorite meat is hot dog. <laughs> An all-time iconic. Yeah. Which, you know, in all fairness to Mitt Romney, good choice. Yeah, good cho- honestly, you know? yeah. That's the thing I respect like, him most for of anything he's ever <laughs> yes. done. Um, and so the in the in Husker Du's uh, uh, songwriting credits were not introduced until their fourth uh, record and that created you know as the aforementioned uh, the the forty five percent vibe the the threatened feelings uh, related to songwriting credits which I have to say it it seems like in the history of all recorded music just splitting everything equal is the the key to happiness as a band mm-hmm. like anything other than that and then things just get really hairy really fast. Yeah, that's the REM story. That's mm-hmm. what they always talk about with them, that they credited every song to all four members. And I think there is an argument to be made when you have a band that sounds as unique as Husker do, that like even if one guy brings in a song, that the sound of that band was going to transform the song and take it in a totally different direction. Yeah. Um, and those three guys playing together, um, you know, even if you're not, technically like writing the lyric or something i mean it seems like that's a pretty big part of of what they did yeah right i love i i love again that's maybe my favorite thing about husker do is the the two songwriters trying to top each other yeah and Mm -hmm. and, and bringing something different to the to the table and i i love i love it when there's bands like that and there's there's not a ton of bands obviously you have the beatles that did that there's a the band drive-by truckers i think has that same dynamic um there's and there's other examples, but I, there's actually not that many though where you feel it as like pal. It's really palpable in Husker Du, yeah. uh, especially it, in their later records. It's a hard dynamic to sustain because for the very reason that makes it great, because you know having people in competition, you need to like really gel together to to allow that to function for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah and not get like burnt out on like feeling resentful. Yes, <laughs> which is also hard to do at any job, especially. Uh, job as as musician um so yeah that zen arcade comes next we had previously discussed this in the podcast miniseries by the fact that zen arcade inspired uh minutemen to make their insane uh 45 song uh double album but zen Zen arcade was a was the inspiration for that um and that was their kind of like real national breakthrough that was in uh 1984 it was released uh, it was it was released and often out of stock for months afterwards, <laughs> which uh, we we've talked about this before. Just like the scarcity of like the physical media seems like such a nightmare at the time, especially a if you're a fan and you want to get your hands on it, and b if you're the band and you're like, my God, why can't we just sell some more records by having those records <laughs> to <exist>? be available? <laughs> yeah, uh, I I can't imagine how frustrating that that would have been. Yeah, um, and the other especially thing especially at, yeah. at a time when you're like finally getting like national attention and people are looking at you and they want to write you're breaking reviews, through you yeah. want to get plays like literally talking to radio stations being like hey can we play your record and be like sorry no more copies exist don't have it <laughs> well and you know not, not to sound like a super old man but I mean that you know that that's like the old world that's totally gone now the yeah. idea that like if you could read about a band like Husker Du but if you lived in a certain town that didn't have a cool record store like there's literally no way to hear it 
Yeah. You know? That's crazy. And, there were, and I know like when I was, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough where part of my childhood was in that world. Um, actually, like all my childhood for the most part, but because internet came in like when I was in college. But um, there were so many records that I read about that I didn't hear for years. You know? Yeah. Like, it might be, you know, it wasn't just a matter of like, I like, I read about Husker Du. I'm going to be a Husker Du fan now. It's like, well, you may not, they may not have those records for like a long time. I think, I think that's probably, again, like why I heard Warehouse first because that was on Warner Brothers. Yeah. Like, I don't think. There was literally availability of it because a major yeah, corporation was, was manufacturing it. Yeah, it was more accessible. I mean, I think I bought a used cassette because this was, you know, about five years mm-hmm. after uh, that record came out. So, you know, it was more accessible, but it wasn't like, you know, Michael Jackson thriller or something. There weren't like 10 copies of it, you know, at the <laughs> store or anything. Do, yeah, doing just, this series is kind of making me grateful to even have some memory of music scarcity. Uh, just because it, it, I feel like it, it grounds the grounds the now avail- endless availability of music somewhat to be like, this this is a very recent thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I try not to over-romanticize that because it, it sucked at the time. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it is nice just to be able to like, oh, I want to hear uh, uh, New Day Rising and you just go boop, boop, boop and yeah. it's there and you can listen to it as much as you want. I mean, that's great. You know, I had to like, get on my bike and like ride <laughs> to the other side of town and you might get there and the record might not even be there, you know? Right, and, right. Uh, and I have happy memories of that, but you know, it's, it's still like, wasn't the best uh, dynamic, but you know, getting back to Zen arcade, you know, there's so many examples now of like a punk band, like making their double album opus mm-hmm. or like their concept album, mm-hmm. you know, like Titus Andronicus does that. Uh, fucked up did that mm-hmm. right obviously green day did that um and i think like this record is the beginning of that like they did this thing that was very much associated with like classic rock excess mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. and they put it into a punk framework um and i think that's something that's easy to take for granted now but it really seems revolutionary you know at that time to sort of do that kind of music on such a grand scale you know, and make yeah. it work. Um, you know, so, but yeah, I feel like that has just been done so many times. And like Zen Arcade is the beginning. And even now, like if you read reviews of like any of these grand opuses, they usually reference Zen Arcade, mm-hmm. like, you know, somewhere in there. We wanted to make our Zen Arcade. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and maybe they wanted to make their Quadrophenia, you know, <laughs> right? which they did, you know. Well, let's listen to something off of here. Uh, we listened to a heart one last, so let's go with a mold one. Here's Chartered Tricks. Oh, 
one one thing about the kind of uh, thinness of the recording is that it re- can really let you focus on the tightness and specificity of the song songwriting. Like I was just hyper focusing in on that little uh, like double bass and guitar like instrumental bridge. Right. Yeah, I was gonna give a shout out to Greg Norton. We haven't really talked much about him. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's a pretty underrated bass player because he's really kind of given shape to that song. Mm-hmm. There, like you, you have Mold and Hart, who are like these, you know, crazy show off guys. You know, Hart's <laughs> all over the kit, uh, and uh, Mold's playing the super overamped guitar. But then you have that bass line, which kind of holds it all together, really. Yeah, I mean, which is what a bass player is supposed to do. But yeah, and especially um, if you're like you have that wall of fuzz live sound, you're really going to rely on the bass to like anchor the actual uh, musicality of the song from section to section. Yeah, I I feel like that bass sound too was something, and he must have trying to remember. I think David Barb is the bass player in Sugar. I think Mold probably just told him to play like right, right <laughs> because I think it's a similar type vibe in there like all these kind of great descending bass lines yeah, yeah yeah that exists which i think is a total bob mold trademark um of his songs but i thought you were gonna play something i learned today here here let's let's do some something i learned today because this is a great opening track um pretty unbelievable bob mold It's a card. Yeah, I like how he can hit those yelps mid mid line. Yeah, and again, like he's so angry but like there's a softness to it at the same time mm-hmm. which I think is so unique you know of that time that uh, it's like he's like an open wound mm-hmm. in these songs um, but, all, but not doing it in like a cloying way you know like how sometimes like sensitive guys rock yeah. can get like okay <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's you know, a little, keep it to yourself. Like, just, mm-hmm. like, like, toughen up here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, it's the way he expresses it. It's, like, so real. Yeah, uh, it, like, every every Bob Mould song is, like, a, a guy finally telling you why, why, why he's angry after a month of you cont- being able to tell that he's been pissed yeah. off for a bit, and you're, like, slowly wheedling him. It's like it's like the worst day of Bob Mould's life. Yeah, exactly. Here we go. We're gonna start the song. Like every, you know, and uh, yeah. Sometimes you can't listen to him. You know, that's mm-hmm. why like the Grant Hart songs are such a great balance mm-hmm. on these records. Because if it's just Bob Mould having the worst day of his life, <laughs> every song, I mean that that gets tough. And that's even, I mean, and that's a weakness sometimes of his solo records because. Mm. They're so intense, like Black Sheets of Rain. You hear that record, or <laughs> yeah. like, or Workbook. Workbook is like, it's a. I think that's a pretty brilliant record, but it is. It's like painful. It's like right. it hurts. Mm-hmm. To listen to that, and it's like, hey, how about you know, a great pop song from from <laughs> Grant Hart? Like, I could, I, I need that right now. It's a salve. Yeah, to, on the know. mood. Yeah, yeah. 
give me a breather here. Yeah, yeah. you need this, totally. some. Uh, give me a piece of some candy emotional here, white man. space. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been you know mainlining salt here. From... Does it does it somebody <laughs> in the in the chapter refer to their music as like uh, the a beautiful river of honey and battery acid? <laughs> oh, I don't I don't remember reading that, but that sounds that sounds right. And if it, maybe, someone didn't say that, then that's a good. Maybe quote, that was Chris. something else I was reading, uh, reading recently. But yeah, that that sounds right. Yeah. But again, you know, like I was saying before, I feel like that dynamic that is so specific to Husker Du, I think that was such a huge influence on like '90s alternative rock. Right. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think for all the great bands that are in that book, even like Sonic Youth, who's obviously a very influential band, I think Husker Du, like their thing, so many bands were attempting that mm-hmm. in the 90s with varying degrees of success. I mean, Nirvana, I mean, I think they've said that they were you know, just doing Husker Du. Yeah, I mean, because uh, like when you say that at the beginning, you know, you skip ahead 87 to 92, it's like if you turn down the fuzz a little bit and like slow the song 10 to 15 to 20%, then you really get exactly what would be in that like 92, post 92, I don't know, alt rock, 90s rock. Well, uh, it almost makes me wonder that if, what, if the if the proportion was switched and it was 55% Grant Hart, I actually ah. think they would have been more successful. Interesting. Mm. There we because, go. Because, you know, I think of a record, you know, I keep talking about Copper Blue. If that record didn't make Bob Mould like a superstar, then no record will. Mm-hmm. We'll have to listen to some Copper Blue at the end of this to see that, just like the final. The production is there. The songs are there. Um, I think that record did pretty well. I mean, it's definitely a well-regarded album, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like Pearl Jam 10. It wasn't Nirvana, never mm-hmm. mind. Um, I just think the intensity of Bob Mould is what people love about him, but like it makes him not primetime entertainment. Right, right, right. You know, <laughs> it's like, it, it's a little too intense. Whereas Grant Hart, um, there's a sweetness to, to him that is just Easy to easier to tolerate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for I think you know, most people. Well, I think it's that, that dual dynamic that that you know gets them into the door of the major the majors, but but can't quite get them over the top there. But I, that's probably into the next section, Molly. You you are so right. <laughs> <laughs> the I mean, you know, Zen Arcade obviously get that's where they start getting on. Like you know, we've been talking a lot about like fanzines and and local local publications and stuff, but they ended up on like the, the year year end best of lists of uh, like LA times and, and the village voice. So like, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the, the a big deal. Capital B capital D, but uh, they, you know, they, they're on SST as a label and uh, by 1987, SST owed them. They they deferred royalties on their records, which <laughs> they, they were basically like, it. "Yeah, we make we make all of our money touring, so uh, anything any royalties are just gravy." And then by by 1987, SST owed them like 150 thousand dollars that it took them like years to pay off. Um, so and they're also you know the working relationship with SST is starting to fray a little bit. Um, they keep having to use Spot, the uh, the in house producer which they start to chafe at and want to you know produce their own stuff which i think they finally do on flip your wig um and uh the flip during the flip your wig sessions uh warner brothers makes an offer and it's an offer that the band cannot refuse and i cannot i didn't put this in the notes but there's someone maybe it's greg gann i can't remember someone basically says like they called it uh they they knew that of all the bands in this sort of general 
national indie rock scene that uh, Husker Du, they weren't surprised that Husker Du signed to a major because they had some kind of, they, they always had some sort of eye toward he, commercial he is, ability. Yes. Was it Ian McKay? I think it was Ian McKay, Ian McKay who said that he didn't like the sound on their second EP, which is their, uh, their statues slash amusement EP mm-hmm. because it was so much slower than their live show. And that one of the guys, the Hooskers had said, Oh yeah, well we were kind of hoping to get like college play off this one, uh, college radio play off this one. And yeah. McKay later was like, I always knew that they'd sell yes. out to the majors after they said they'd slow down the damn songs to get college play. Yeah. The, God, God forbid someone change play their approach record, yeah. to recording or playing based on maybe wanting more people to hear like, it I mean, or I, enjoy I get, it. I get, I get it for those guys, but also it's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Get people to play the records. Yeah. yeah it sounded like they sounded like journey or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> record. I mean, g- give me a break. Yeah, yeah. We were thinking of getting Rick Ocasek for this one. <laughs> That's that's I mean, always the sign of a of a, of a band trying to go full full yeah. gloss. Get Ocasek in here. But that was really the time where everyone was starting to sign to major labels because mm-hmm. you had the replacements, obviously REM. Uh, they signed to Warner's with uh, uh, Document, which would have been eighty seven. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. With actually REM was a little was relatively late. Like they didn't go to Warner's until Green, which was nineteen eighty yeah nineteen eighty eight. So that's interesting that they, they kind of stuck around longer because REM to me seems like they're, I think they got a lot of that kind of flack where mm-hmm. they were more of a careerist type band and and were more professional. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like Paul Westerberg would take shots at them because you know, <laughs> they were definitely like like the goofus in that dynamic and R.E.M. was the gallant, you know, right. like the, <laughs> the band that always screws up and the band that never screws up. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me. To say that, like, I mean, certainly Zen Arcade to me still has like a lot of like pretty like noisy elements to it. I mean, New Day Rising, I think, is a really interesting record to come after that because I was listening to it again before going on this call, and like that's like a really melodic record. Uh, there's like no hardcore in there at all. There's like some hardcore songs on zen arcade but mm-hmm. you know there's that song like book about ufos like where there's like that weird piano yeah overdubbed in there it almost sounds like a springsteen song like done by Husker du uh it's a really interesting uh dynamic and yeah like with that record and flip your wig is you know kind of the prime i think of them uh i'd like to play a few off of a uh, uh, new day rising yeah because this is probably my favorite and my favorite Husker's song in general is I Apologize, so we're going to listen to that. All these crazy mixed up lies are floating all around Making me sell some... It really helps that his voice is recorded so much clearer, more clear early on this. Yeah. I don't know what you think I just really like that I apologize uh, section in this and I think it's like a good like spotlight of their vocal interplay at its best. I was just gonna say, I feel like this is like where the 
conversation, I think, really starts to come into play between them. I feel like, because I think this is like a really good Grant Hart record. I mean, he has like really good songs on, on Zen Arcade. And we didn't play this song, but on Metal Circus, that song, Diane, mm-hmm. I think is a great song. But it's starting to feel like a little more balanced, I think, around this time. Yeah, I'll go to the uh, song right before this, which is a Grant Hart song, The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill. Yeah. a funny one to pick because this is actually kind of a little raw of one. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, this is almost like him doing a Bob Mould yeah. type style. Like His vocal is like definitely yeah. shoutier. I do like these uh, songs a lot. Maybe I'll go to book of, books about UFOs to do more of that pop thing. <laughs> yeah, this, this just always gives me like an E Street band type yeah. feel. It's like if, saloon if, piano. Yeah, like if it were like a three-piece punk band trying to sound like the river or you know darkness on the edge of town um and it has kind of like a 50s feel to it yeah um it's still it's so funny to hear that piano with like that that's still that buzzsaw guitar in the background yeah. it sounds like somebody trying to saw a piano in half but you can hear them like like trying to do like more pop techniques on this record like with celebrated summer there's that acoustic opening and then the guitar comes in and then there's that that middle section that is kind of like the most overtly pretty music that they've made yet in their career uh, we can we can move on to the major label records. I just want to play some off this because it is New Day Rising rock it's so good well, the I mean, the other ironic thing is that Flip Your Wig could have been their first Warner Brothers release, and they gave it to SST kind of out of the like honor system or something, <laughs> uh, and instead gave uh, Warner the uh, the much inferior Candy Apple Gray, inferior at least according to to Azarad. Um, but should we listen to something from uh, Flip Your Wig and then something from Candy Apple Gray to? To te- test the difference? Yeah, sure. Uh, Stephen, do you have any requests from these, or should I just go off my notes? Well, I want you to play Flexible Flyer, which I think is a really good Grant Hart deep cut. Great. This is, so this is Flexible Flyer off Flip Your Wig. This record and New Day Rising are probably like the best sounding mm. yeah. new records. Um, but this song, this this could have been like an REM song, right? Mm. Very melodic song, and his vocal is like pretty. You know, we just listened to Heaven, a house on Heaven Hill. Or wait, a house. yeah, that, the, no, the girl who lives on Heaven Hill, right? Yeah, I think I, I think I was doing a Japan Droids. Uh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. A house that Heaven built is the Japan Droids song. Uh, but like he's much shoutier on that song mm-hmm. and like this one is more of like he's singing on this this seems more of like a college rock radio song it's, like, they put out so many records over a relatively little period of time but it is interesting that it, it, it's all of a trajectory of like it, every record feels like 
a growth from the last, you know? Yeah, and it's amazing, too, again, just the quality control, I think, is like yeah. really high. I mean, there's not a lot of bum tracks. Uh, isn't, uh, there, isn't there a song called The Baby Song on that record? <laughs> like, we're just like a baby noise. <laughs> uh, yes, there is a, a The Baby Song. The Baby Song. Not, not a high point. <laughs> but, but it's sort of like a... Yeah. It's like one of those things that you throw on the record as a gag. Yeah, I think it's like a subversive thing. Like, yeah. we're a punk band. We have a song called The Baby Song. Mm. Like, you get it? Yeah. Maybe making fun of their audience a little bit. Yeah. But, you know. It, I know that by the, also by this time, uh, they were... <laughs> They, they they were among the 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 performers who were getting pretty uh, exasperated with their audience because uh, didn't it say like mold would constantly yell at the stage divers like just don't touch the mic yeah 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 stay away from the mic um, gotta gotta get that two tiered stage going yeah the two they have, honestly the minor threat boys had a good idea with that yeah um all right let's just go for one off of candy apple gray even the name candy apple gray just sounds like an album that you kind of like don't. You're, you're not like maybe you didn't like put your heart and soul into it I don't know uh, here's Crystal off Candy Apple Gray well we do know that gray is Mold's favorite color it is I remember the album cover's pretty bad yeah <laughs> a lot of Husker Du album covers are, are not that great yeah <laughs> No, this is in my one of my favorite traditions of a, a punk or indie band getting called up to the majors to release an album with like the, one of the most hideous album covers of all time. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, was a which a much stronger trend in the '90s, but maybe started here. Yeah, I mean, this is the first one where I'm kind of like, "Mold, what are you doing on vocals here, man?" Vocal performance is oh, yeah. it's so weird to me. Yeah, this is very shouty. Yeah, yeah more shouty than expressive. There are some like interesting melodic things going on. It looks like the bass in the background. I mean, it's still there. You can still they're still very good, but it is it's just like it is it is the first one where you put it on. You're like, oh, this is a fall off. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this show. I kind of skip over this stuff. And you go to uh, to Warehouse, right? Yeah, you know, I would say Zen Arcade, um, New Day Rising, Flip Away, mm-hmm. uh, Warehouse would be, like, that's like my candy <laughs> for Fusco Do. And Candy Apple Gray, I, I think I just like mentally edited it out. And, it, <laughs> and because there's so many other records, because didn't... Um, did Flip Your Wig come out in 86, too? Or was that 85? Yeah. 86, okay. We kind of fl- skipped over that for time, but uh, Molly, uh, so what happens after the uh, the major label release? Well, this is this is the downturn of, uh, of personal lives, which is that uh, Hart uh, starts using heroin right, right around the time that Bob Mould gets sober, which if for whatever, however their dynamic was going in the band before, that definitely could not have helped in those two paths. Uh, and then Hart was also, he, he said that he, you know, got into drugs to kind of escape the stress of 
this increased pressure on the band, uh, but he, that he had also gotten a positive HIV test that he did not tell the band about, that he was also uh, perhaps trying to, to escape from that news as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, according to the book, Heart and Mold were feuding openly by 1987. You don't really get the, the super illustrative de- details about this, but you can only imagine, I'm sure, what rehearsals, et cetera, were like. Um, and then there was also another tragedy where uh, Bob Mold's close friend, David Savoy, um, basically got hired to run like the band's, like manage the band's office. And then uh, he, he, took his own life kind of in the midst of mediating between the band and the label uh, on the eve of their tour, um, which was like a tragedy that the the band never got over. And um, you, all of this happened. And then they put out warehouse, which hit Warner's just the ultimate kind of like perfect victory where it's like, it hits the, the sales target, which, and yet they didn't make that much more money than they would have even if they had put, kept putting stuff out the way they were before. Um, just you know, for for various reasons, and uh, yeah, because because they, they yeah. had to like you know do all a major like marketing push and like yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. have the costs of putting out a major label album gets sunk into things that are not like just producing the just, album and selling right, it. right. The yeah. overhead increases with the with the attention. I have to go back to the the Grant Hart story about yeah. him getting the HIV yeah. positive test, which I think is so quick because he later found out, I guess after the band broke up, that it was a false positive. Yeah, yes, but that. Is so insane to me that he was living with that for I, I, it sounds like about a year. Yeah. Or so, especially in the eighties, where you know at that time that was a death sentence. So to be having that hanging over your head is like so like horrific to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. I mean, and I mean, one thing we haven't talked about that I think is actually a pretty important thing about Husker Du is that you have a gay man Bob Mold in the band, and you have a mm-hmm. bisexual man Grant Hart. Right. Mm-hmm. In a scene that, like, I feel like at that time, like, I don't think it was as like, inclusive, certainly, as we are now. Yeah. Um, right. And, uh, like, I don't know if they were, I, 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 like, were they out at that time? I think they actually were, weren't they? Azarad puts a very, paints it in a very uh, workman, in a typical Husker Du, northern uh, Midwest fashion, a very workmanlike spin on it, where it's like, it was known. It was not a big deal. They the way that he says is that they they took lovers on tour. Nobody really talked about it. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure. I mean, just to be. Uh, so I mean, they were out. It just wasn't maybe discussed all that much. And when people wrote about them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that still seems like pretty like ahead of their time. I mean. Right. I mean, you have Michael Stipe, who uh, you know he he ended up coming out like many years later. Um, but I mean, just, I don't know. I mean, I, I would imagine that would have been difficult for them. It would have added like another layer to just making it difficult for them to break out as a band, you know, yeah. to, so to have that how public, public to be about it, how much they even wanted it to be like something that was considered part of their band's identity, considering, you know, the, again, like the scene that they were, they were tied to and how people might've uh, treated it in that. Yeah. I, I, it is, it is a thing to underscore here about how much just like added possibly secret pressure that put on both of them. And then then like after the band, I feel like they were both asked so many times if they were ever a couple too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and I haven't read Bob Mould's book, but apparently he writes about that or he, you know, addresses those. Cause I read an interview with Grant Hart where he was upset that Bob Mould insinuated some things about him. Mm. Like uh, there was like some, 
male musician that Bob Moult said that Grant Hart hit on at some point. Mm-hmm. And Grant Hart was like, that's not true. And he was like really angry yeah. about it. Like, I don't think those guys ever reconciled really. I mean, they it seemed like they maybe talked toward the end, like for band issues. But mm-hmm. um, I, the interview I read with Grant Hart, which was like in 2013, about four years before he died. Right. Was like pretty, he sounded pretty angry at uh, yeah. Mold, especially about that book. That's um, interesting. We'll, yeah, we'll have to cover that at some point. Because yeah, yeah we'll, the, we'll, I feel uh, like. Maybe in an addendum on the, the heart, like maybe a Mold and Heart interview. Well, and the, the Mold, the Mold memoir is written by Michael Azarad. So, you know, it comes full circle here. With uh, well, something to <laughs> to put on the stacks, but um. I, th- I mean, I think Hart felt that I, I think he felt this also in reference to our band could be your life that Azarek was in the tank for Bob Mold, mm. and that uh, and he because I don't think Grant because I think Mold is interviewed in that book. I don't think Grant Hart is. I don't know if he didn't want to be interviewed. I, I, am I wrong? Is he interviewed in that book? I don't. I'm, think I'm trying to remember whether his quotes it's, are. It's, it's are kind of hard to tell because. He he'll get like quotes from it, but then you can't quite tell if it's something that he was told or if it was taken from a fanzine from an or something. Interview, yeah, I, I I would say having just read the majority of the chapter this morning, that heart and mold come off. I would say both pretty well, like serious people who were very dedicated to their band, who were under a well, put themselves on a lot of under a lot of pressure to be you know, a band in a certain way, like the touring hardcore band sleeping on, you know, parents' basement floors forever, like living inside abandoned churches, stuff, you know, stuff like that. This was not an easy lifestyle. And um, I think that they both, I think they both come off uh, pretty well for what they accomplished, given it mold more as kind of like a, a, an ornery, grouchy, uh, <laughs> a bit of a prick, but, but, you know, it comes with taking it seriously and heart more of a, um, I don't know, not necessarily flamboyant, but you know, whimsical and, and eventually like more, a little more lighthearted or something. lighthearted, and 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 eventually more dependent, substance dependent, which is its own thing. But yeah, I don't know. I they, they to me, just reading it, they came off mostly as as equals in in both temperament and output. I mean, I watched um, Husker Du's appearance on the Joan Rivers show, mm-hmm. yes, in 1987, which is on YouTube. I watched it before getting on the show. Yeah, and like Joan, shout out to Joan Rivers by the way. She's had, she had like some pretty amazing guests like i think the beastie boys were on like the, in their license the ill era and uh, <laughs> a, a bunch great. of people like that just as but a like, quick aside on the beastie boys azarad has a great little dig on them in in this chapter where he's like uh, i forget what the name of their first band is is uh do who's do getting in a, a bit of a skiff because they they w- wanted to do their openers to be paid more than some crummy local hardcore band called like you know kids of distortion sons of distortion or something who got paid a hundred dollars and uh as red has an parenthetical uh sons of distortion would co- would continue to command at least a hundred dollars for all of their appearances after shortly after thereafter transforming into the beastie boys um <laughs> 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 There's on on the joan rivers show there's a there's a like she asks them like what's your roles in the band like to eat, you know, because like she's interviewing all three of them on yeah. the couch, and like Bob Moult says that I'm the calm one, I'm the calming influence, and, he, and Greg Norton says I'm I'm in the middle, and then and Grant Hart's like, well, he's like, I guess I'm the wild one, you know, like <laughs> I, I I don't agree with that. I mean, like, because I think as I understand it, the core conflict there was that there was a narrative put out after Who's Do broke up that they broke up because Grant Hart was a heroin addict, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 Hart disputed that, and he said that. Bob Mould is a control freak, essentially. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that, uh, and I don't know. There's probably some truth in 
in, in both of those perspectives. I mean, we talked about this before that when you have these competing songwriters in the same band that at, at some point, like you can't coexist anymore. Um, and when you're touring all the time and you're making so many records, uh, yeah, I'm sure it just took it out of them. Although I will say, and again, I don't know if this is a contrarian opinion, um, because I feel like people tend to say Zen Arcade is their pinnacle, and that is a great record. But Warehouse is my favorite Husker Du record. Mm. Um, I think because they're both basically evenly um, represented, and I think songwriting wise, um, it's consistently like great. Like I, I, I love almost every song on that record. I don't know. Am I wrong? I mean, I feel like maybe <laughs> that record is slighted a little bit because I know certainly like in the Azerad book, he tends to just dismiss any major label record. Like he's well, into the indie records and he kind of dismisses like for every band, well, let's, which I don't let's, think is fair, but well, well let's mm. listen to a little bit of that in a minute. Molly, maybe you want to, because well, yeah, we've been talking I mean, about how the breakup happens. Maybe just get yeah, this that is pretty much image. the end. This is pretty much the end of the, the narrative of them as, as a band with, you know, as we, as was previously mentioned, the, the issue of a uh, heart trying to detox from heroin and, uh, it was before a couple of planned shows and he is, he, his methadone stash like went literally went down the drain by accident. Um, and you know, the band was kind of worried whether he was going to be in shape to play. He said he was mold canceled the shows anyway, a couple days later, uh, heart quit and then, and then mold pulled the plug. Um, so kind of, uh, as all of these, normally we read a book and it's, it's, you know, one band or one musician and sometimes they haven't even broken up, but I feel like each of these chapters is a sort of mini tragedy in and of itself of just the end of, of these, of these eras for these people. Um, but, uh, yeah, let, let's listen to something off of a warehouse to, to take us home. Uh, what are your, what are your highlights, Steven? Oh man. So many great songs on this record. Um, how about standing in the rain? All right, great. Let me. There we go. Here is Standing in the Rain off of Warehouse. The song takes a while to get started. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear it kind of reverberating in the back. See, we're, yeah, we're incorporating sound effects. We're in the sound effects era. <laughs> Looking outside my window, all I see is gray. I'm watching the clouds roll by. like a bit of like a white album vibe to this mm. record where you feel like the two guys are making solo records on, on the same record other. yeah mm. or or tusk like fluid mac it's like you know you feel like you listen to tusk it's like a lindsey buckingham new wave solo record tucked inside of a fleetwood mac record um, i care about you and i don't know Maybe that's just something you project on it after the fact. Uh, I don't know if it sounded like that way at the time, but like when I listen to this record, I feel like oh, you can hear them coming apart. As a mm, right. It's, it's like two different. It's like two, you know, because like they're each writing like an album's worth of material on right. their own. So you have eleven songs for Mold, nine for Heart. Here comes the rain. Yes, 
it's interesting too. I don't. I'd have to listen to this record again on the way through. But like, there's less Grant Hart interjecting vocally mm-hmm. on this yes. song, and which to me kind of again it, it underscores the separateness of them. It's like you have your songs, I have my songs. Yeah, and it doesn't feel as like intertwined. Maybe. It, I do. Th- I do think as a you know as a. Uh, a fan, but a fairly casual fan, that they're really at their best, despite who's winning, who wrote the song, when they're singing together. That right. their their group singing has such a special quality to it. That, like this stuff right here, uh, that it has such a special quality to it. That, that that's one of the things I consider the signature Hooskerjoo sound is, is the duo or trio vocals uh, to it. It's very funny. I mean, we, we've touched on him a little bit just to, to add, you know, uh, Greg Norton, too, to this. He has such, like, um, eternal, like, middle middle child energy with, like, you know, <laughs> even the flamboyant mustache to, like, stand out a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he's great. The bass is the middle child of the band. The bass is the middle child of the band. That is it's a great way to be. put it, Molly. And but, sometimes, sometimes the middle child's got to act out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, again, I think, you know, musically, I think he held it together. And I think you, you needed a guy like that in that band mm-hmm. to connect mold and heart. I mean, if if he was as crazy as those guys, they would have never got. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That you know, as far as they did. Um, and I have to say, too, you know, again, like who's going to do is like an amazing looking band. Mm-hmm. Like they're so unique looking and the mustache of Greg Norton and uh you know, again like the the hippie beach bum look that Hart had and then yeah that the the English professor look of Bob Mould. They look like they're <laughs> just to share a screen real quick. They're like from three different bands. Yeah. <laughs> there, you know. I, I feel like that is such a like eighties indie band thing of like you go from the Ramones, which is like everyone is dressed exactly the same in the like punk uniform and then now the idea of like what is punk i don't know wearing whatever you want and i want to wear a collared shirt yeah, co- yeah. collared shirt tucked into jeans tucked with into jeans thing. yeah and, and <laughs> that's to me punk that's rock. you know as someone who can be ambivalent about punk sometimes especially like punk politics yeah, yeah yeah like that to me is like what that music is is at its best like when you just have non-conformity you know yeah. like we're to us, punk means it's not a sound. It's not like a look. It's just doing what you want to do, and uh, that's and for them, matters. it's also like the 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 very positive, like just the influence of like the raw, literally, <laughs> literally raw power with supercharging something very you know melodic and and linked to. We didn't really talk about it, but Azarad talks about it a bit a bit. Uh, their like link and passion for '60s folk tunes mm-hmm. uh, and psychedelica, psychedelia, uh, and they cover like birds, eight miles high, notably. Yeah. That 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 using the, their hardcore milieu to inject all of that '60s stuff into their music, uh, you know, I think is one of their great strengths. Yeah, I was watching this documentary that um, Minnesota Public Television did on like Minnesota hardcore. Hell yeah, that sounds I think, great. I think it came out like last year. And um, there was this interview with a with a kid who was into Husker Du in the in the 80s. And he said he had a memory of like walking into a club and Husker Du was covering eight miles high. And like he just turned around and like left. <laughs> he was like, he's like, I don't want to hear that. 
you know, he wanted to hear hardcore music. Yeah. And to me, that's like, that, okay, but that's actually more confrontational than, than, than just playing hardcore forever. Yeah. Like they're yeah. actually challenging you by dragging this thing that you don't think should belong here into this context, you know? So to me, that's like actually pretty brave of them to do because they could have mm-hmm. lost the small audience that they had and not gone anywhere, you know, after doing things like that. Hardcore is just trying to drive someone out of a room with your sound. <laughs> yes. That's a great way to, <laughs> though, no matter, no and matter di- what people different, <laughs> people have different uh, tactics depending on, on what, how they want to get you out of the room. But that's the that is the key. I'm pretty sure every band in this book that we've done for this podcast so far has been like, we want to drive people out of the room. <laughs> yes, get them out. Well, any uh, any final thoughts from your notes, Molly? That's it for me. Um, that's it. These guys are good. We stand hardworking and melodic uh, punkers from Minnesota. Uh, they're also the first on this book to make the major label switch. Something that will become, I believe, a story of every band going on from here. Except be happening. Mm. Maybe a few of them don't quite make it. Yeah. Uh, but you know that'll become something, uh, 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 an event that we will track more and more through the rest of this book. Um, Stephen, any any final thoughts on on Husker? Um, you know, I'm just going to go on a limb and say that they they were pretty good. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be a contrarian <laughs> and uh, say I don't care what anyone else says. Husker do they're a good band. You should listen to them. Yeah, yeah, and all their their middle section albums. Uh, from Metal Circus on are just so easy to throw on and just immediately get into. So many good songs on there. Always fun to revisit. Uh, who's yeah. Good. And again, still, I think they sound unique, even though they were uh, so influential and, and, and copied, I think, a lot. There's still something really unique about those three guys playing together. Um, and I also say, too, you know, uh, that box set that Numero Group did, the Savage Young do mm-hmm. which covers their early years that gave me a new appreciation for that hardcore era which i didn't really have before there's like a lot of live stuff on there there's uh so i think that and i think that's on streaming platforms so although i would encourage you to buy it if you are a fan <laughs> of husker do but like if you just want to dabble you can mm-hmm. check out a, i think it's on streaming services um but yeah yeah true originals great midwesterners yes i they- took my cap to them they're they are Midwestern well, I, legends. Well, I guess Bob Mold isn't technically. I get Grant Hart for sure. Ado- adopted son of son of yes. Minnesota. Yes. Well, up up super upstate New York is like <laughs> pretty much <laughs> culturally. Uh, hey, we can all agree on Great Lakes. Great, Great Lakes excellence. Uh, well, on that, let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can we find you? What would you like to plug? What should uh, the the Hayden heads out there keep their their eyes out for? Um, I have uh, my latest book. Uh, this isn't happening. Is coming out on paperback in June, uh, so you can pre order that now. Otherwise, all my other books are available wherever you buy your books. Uh, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Hayden. So come and say hello and yell at me for not being respectful <laughs> of early Husker Du hardcore era. Yeah, makes makes Steven appreciate the, the land speed record. Well, <laughs> we're going to set the land speed record straight. <laughs> well, this has been episode five of We Pot Econo. This is ongoing. We are five down, eight left. Molly, anything that you need to plug specifically other than to, for people to keep listening to this? Just keep listening. 
Yeah, keep listening. <laughs> We've got a lot more to, to go. Got a lot more great episodes coming up. Uh, until then, you can find us on Twitter at and IntroPod. You can send us an email. I don't think I've plugged the email. Uh, and IntroducingPod at gmail.com. Oh, here's a new plug. Mm. I made a subreddit for the show in oh, case boy. anybody wants to go like post music links or argue about the episodes or just talk bands or... I'll probably be dumping links as we find them. Molly, uh, just the other day, Stephen, you said you were watching the Joan Rivers uh, appearance. Molly posted the um, Today, Today show, show appearance where Today Show was for some reason broadcasting out of Minneapolis. So it's just Al Roker. Uh, kind Brian of weir- Gumble. Brian Gumble. Brian Gumble. Like kind of weirdly talking <laughs> over and like ending the show while Husker Du plays somewhere in the back in the distance. And you can like kind of hear them playing, but it's mostly bright it's it's a weird it's thing. very today show so we'll, i'll be posting stuff like that that's a subreddit uh reddit.com slash r slash and introducing uh so that's my big plug and announcement for this episode otherwise we'll be back in two weeks here on and introducing